0: Well, thank
1: you very much. And thank you for joining with us. Second Chances with Jim McGreevy. And thank you very much for our great or tremendous guest, Dr. Petros Lavonis. Um, And here we are on Sunday. Thank you very much for joining with me. And doctor, um, you know, you're chair of psychiatry, you're at Rutgers Medical School. Tell us a little bit about who and what you are and your background. And how did you get to this place?
0: Okay. Uh, thank you so much for having me in your program, Governor McGreevy. Uh, it's uh, always a pleasure to work with you and, and to see you. Um, in terms of my background, I was born and raised in, in Greece. Uh, and then I came to the United States uh, as an undergraduate. I came as a freshman in college. Um, I went to Stanford in California. I stayed there for my medical school. Uh, and then I moved over to the and East wh- Why does a young Greek kid go to Stanford? Well, it was the thing to do in high school. If you could uh, put together the grades and uh, the money, and uh, about a third of my graduating class came to the United States. So uh, oh, okay. it was not a, such an unusual thing for, for us. It OK. Was, um, yeah. Uh, but although most people would go to the East Coast,
1: East Coast,
0: uh, there were very, very few who would go to the
1: West Coast. So, and was, um, what was there about Stanford that was particularly attractive besides the sunshine?
0: <laughs> the search, I, I think in, in retrospect, uh, I'm not sure about that, but in retrospect, I think it was uh, uh, the idea of being very far away from, uh, from home. Uh, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't know I was gay at the time, but uh, I think unconsciously that played a role to it, uh, next to San Francisco, uh, very far away from <laughs>
1: from Greece, Everything.
0: Uh, could just Everything like, that you uh, knew. Exactly. So I, I think that that probably had had something to do with it. And then after medical school, after medical school, uh, I came back to the East Coast uh, to do my residency at, at Columbia. Um, I uh, <laughs> I was so sure I was selling my my soul to the devil uh, for coming to New York, uh, and I was so sure I was gonna go right back to California after a residency. Uh, but of course, I end up loving the East Coast, loving New York, New Jersey, and uh, ended up staying, got married. So so why psychiatry? Why psychiatry? That's an excellent question. My father was an internist, and the idea was that uh, I would be uh, an internist as well and continue the, the, family, um, the family tradition. Uh, but um, I mean, the truth, the truth of the matter was that during my third year, of medical school, I had such an awesome attending and uh, attending a psychiatrist. I just want to be exactly like her. Uh, She seemed like she had all her ducks in in order. She had an interesting life. Uh, She was uh, relating so well with her patients. I go, that's the ticket, that's what I want to be. But I think it also kind of reflected more of of an interest and fascination with with the human mind with stories, with uh, uh, you know how people get to where they are, very much like the questions you are asking now, Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. Like how how do you got to be where where what you are now? So yes. and so, what is it when you when you think about
1: psychiatry? Can I'm sorry to ask such a simple question, but what is the purpose of psychiatry?
0: Oh, It's a, a medical uh, specialty that aims to. Uh, assess, diagnose, and treat uh, uh, mental disorders. Um, the classic mental disorders being uh, schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, ADHD, uh, eating disorders, the sexual dysfunction disorders, personality disorders, the substance use disorders, of course, a major one, anxiety disorders, PTSD, the major blocks of, of psychiatry. So there are, a number of uh, medical uh, diagnoses that have been uh, somehow carved out, and uh, we call that um, psychiatry. Um, there's a lot of overlap with neurology, but in 2021, pretty much, you know, if you have epilepsy, you're gonna go and see a neurologist. If you have depression, you're gonna go and see a psychiatrist. I mean, they both happen in the brain, but we have uh, somewhat separated our domains
1: and 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 just for the the policy wonk, so when you think of Freud and you think of Carl Jung and the tension that was between both of those thoughts and and so much of what has happened, particularly in terms of behavioral um, applications, where is psychology or where is psychiatry today in terms of I I guess it's so complicated in each respective query, but how how do we access change um, for the people, say, for example, that we serve, people that are addicted, people that are uh, suffering from, if you will, um, historically an inadequate performance, um, their personal conduct uh, with? drugs and CDS. Um their their, if you will, their the use of self-limiting language. Um, you know, so you know, one of the things that always stuck with me when I was first working with the women, a woman said to me, you know, I'll always be an addict. I'll never be a good mom. Um I'll never have a job. Um and no matter what activities we provided, she seemed always to be subjected to the own, her own offensive narrative. So I, I guess when, when I just, as a, as a quarter construct, if the challenge is to grapple with these illnesses, what is the model, or if you will, what is the, um, what is the construct that we use to assist them?
0: um excellent question here uh it sounds a little uh uh, uh, too common to say but the the truth of the matter is that we are eclectic uh we do borrow from a lot of different uh walks of uh, psychiatric research and psychiatric theory and uh, we put uh, everything that we have together to best serve uh, our patients and that is and should be our main uh, guide to uh, how we, we perform psychiatry. You mentioned uh, Freud and Jung. Uh, a lot of it has been put aside. Yes. But uh, a lot of it is still as applicable now as it was back then. Uh, take, for example, the dichotomy of uh, obsession versus hysteria, uh, something that Freud proposed. Uh, we have discarded the gender uh, side of, of, of that uh, dichotomy. Uh, you know, Freud thought that men were obsessive and women were hysteric. We know that's not true. We all know plenty of uh, men who are quite hysteric and plenty of women who are quite obsessive. But the construct itself of obsession versus uh, uh, hysteria is something that uh, persists uh, even today. Uh, and a, a number of other things that uh, that Freud uh, proposed that are quite applicable today. Uh, Fundamentally, the relationship between the therapist and uh, the patient, how incredibly important that uh, uh, dyadic uh, uh, relationship is. Uh, uh, Even today, uh, the number one predictor of success in psychotherapy is uh, how much the therapist likes the patient and how much the patient likes the therapist. Uh, So, uh, you know, these are things that come straight out of uh, Freudian appreciation of. Mm. It's human psyche. So, so Way better than lot of it, of course. Yeah. So, so, doctor, you know, grappling with
1: our clients, and and so many of our clients, you know, 76 78 percent of them, obviously suffering from addiction, forty two percent co-occurring mental disorders. Um, overwhelmingly, grew up in tough circumstances. How damaging are those early years? The chaos, the trauma um whatever that triggers the cognitive dissonance how damaging is that uh, to the person and can that be unwired or better yet rewired differently
0: yes uh two major things i would like to, to stress on that uh the first one is that uh, there's no question that uh adverse childhood experiences uh and not only childhood but even adolescence and early adulthood uh, can have uh, a detrimental effect, and they do have a detrimental effect in, uh, in in adulthood. But it's the only it's not the only reason why people get addicted. Uh, there are genetic factors that uh, play a very big role in uh, addiction. Uh, there are psychological uh, structures that uh, people have uh, inside them that also contribute uh, very much to the to the addiction. And something that relatively recently we've come to appreciate. The drug itself, um, mm. there was a time when we thought that it was all about the genetics and the psychology, yeah. and the social environment that defined the addiction. But we learned a very tough lesson with the opioid epidemic where the majority That's of phenomenal. people got addicted to uh, opioids. I'm talking about the first uh, phase of the uh, okay. epidemic in the early 2000s. Um, had no genetic predisposition, no psychological problems. They did not live in tough neighborhoods. And yet they were prescribed these high dose uh, opioids and they got addicted from the doctor. So we do know that there is something about the chemistry of these uh, elements that can be incredibly addictive that can uh, play a number in people's heads above and beyond the genetics and the adverse childhood experiences and the psychological factors that we have identified. Well, that only sounds worse it is it is it is uh what can i say i mean it would have been somewhat uh, easier if we had found one uh, yeah we throw all our efforts into uh, a single focus and uh, and do that so yeah no go ahead i'm sorry the the second thing i want to also emphasize here is that although there may be a very direct link between let's say a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events or adverse childhood experience or uh, Real, very, very real catastrophic things that have happened in in a person's life, and these can be directly linked as the cause of their addiction. Once the addiction has set in, it is not enough to go and address those original traumatic experiences. Although, of course, it's a very good idea to do so and to do the best you can, but it's not enough. And probably the only good news here is not always necessary. What I mean here. Is that you can be sober, you can beat the, the the addiction, even without having fully explored what it is that caused it.
1: Interesting. So, so often in our clients, and and actually, some so many of our program participants actually push back. Um, they're frustrated by either the diagnosis of being an addict or mentally ill, when so often it's conflated. Yes.
0: About a third to two thirds of people who suffer from uh, mental illness will also have an addiction. About a third to two thirds of people with an addiction also will have another psychiatric disorders. It's not a hundred percent, but it's not negligible either. Somewhere in 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 between, Um, I've heard both quite often, not not just once or twice. I've heard the two extremes being defended um, very vigorously. People say things like. it's all about the drugs. And if you stop using the drugs, trust me, your depression is going to go away. Your anxieties are going to go away. Everything is going to get better. Just throw all your efforts in getting rid of the drugs. While somebody may very well be suffering from ADHD at the same time, and that ADHD is not going to go away, no matter how much you stop, the drugs will just make it a little better, but it's not going to go away. And vice versa, there are other people who would swear by say, saying that that uh, Every single addicted person I've ever met in my life, if you dig deep enough, you're gonna find some kind of psychological problem. Not true, absolutely not true. There are quite a few people who end up under circumstances uh, getting addicted to a drug and do not have an underlying problem. But of course there are quite a few who do. It's
1: so tough. I mean, so for, for people watching this, whose loved ones may be confronting addiction, I mean, we look at detox. We look at residential, intensive outpatient, uh, MAT, access to psychiatric care. Um, you know, that's if you will the, the sort of the cutout formula. Are there other other things that that families should be doing uh, as a matter of course, as a matter
0: of a as a as a matter of a template? Uh... Twelve-step mutual help yep. groups—that's a, a major component of uh, of addiction treatment, and um, there is mounting and mounting evidence and research that supports its efficacy and safety. Uh, needless to say, widely available, uh, free, <laughs> and uh, quite powerful, quite quite effective. So, what? Why are they so powerful? Two reasons. Um, one. Is a very practical one. Uh, it offers people uh, a lot of support in terms of logistics. And yeah, uh, what do I do? What what? What's the next step? Uh, do, do you recommend I go and see Dr. Levonis uh, or do I go is that decision making? Decision making. It's all frontal lobe things. All very cognitive. Very not rational things. Uh, very specific skills, assertiveness skills. You mentioned before, uh, patients who uh, use uh, uh, self-defeating language, uh, patients who uh, may uh, be uh, somewhat uh, self-defeating altogether. And uh, in these uh, groups, you you learn how to assert yourself. On the other end, there is uh, uh, significant help for people who may be too aggressive and maybe maybe too much in in your face. And the and they check these things in a group and, and they learn from each other. And uh, uh, people, uh, as it kind of colloquially said, they call you on your shit. So you just mentioned
1: something that I think is important. I find a lot of our program participants, there's a level of which when you hold them accountable, they respond. Mm-hmm. And then there's a level against which... And and I've been guilty about this because of how I was raised. My dad was a Marine Corps DI, and it was just like, hold you accountable, scorch earth. But there's a level of accountability that against which, sadly, I think many of our program participants will push away and say, like, I can't do it, or I won't do it, or they feel frustrated that they're not validated or it's it's just a really interesting
0: space. Are you thinking about like tough love, this kind of intervention? Yeah. I mean, like
1: we're in the business of saying that you have to, you know, you have to attend to your IOP, you have to show up to your job. And we put this all in Salesforce and we record this, but then, you know, when, when Jim doesn't show up to work or Jim doesn't show up to his IOP and there's a sanction, um, and one sanction is okay, but if I'm doing repeated sanction, because I get the sense, doctor, that people are starting to slide, it's almost as if, and this is coming from somebody who is ignorant, but it's almost as if, if I sanction them for every time they commit a transgression, at, at some point it just becomes overwhelming. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, <laughs> little doubt that there are people who respond quite well to sanctions, people who uh, respond quite well to uh, confrontation. Um, but they seem to be the minority of, uh, of people. Um, the majority of people most likely respond more to rewards rather than punishments of, of, of sorts of rewarding good behavior, uh, rather than punishing uh, uh, bad behavior talking about uh, contingency management, vouchers, uh, things of that sort. The main problem that we have is that we don't really know who's who. We don't know, even if there were about equal number of people who would respond. No, this is is very important. We don't have the tools to say, Jim is going to be one of those guys who will really uh, respond very well to confrontation or he's going to crumble under the confrontation is going to get 10 times worse. That is the main problem that we, that, that we face. So
1: we just simply don't know who that person is.
0: We don't. And uh, we usually go with, uh, you know, with, with the contingency management, with the vouchers, with the positive uh, uh, reinforcement uh, strategies. But I have and uh, colleagues of mine have also used confrontational techniques when somehow we get the feeling that uh, people are going to respond to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's I, a hard call. We, we started the conversation with my background, but uh, my father specialized in asthma and uh, his uh, office was uh, on the same. It was on the first floor of their house where we lived, and the second floor is where we live. And I remember him screaming and yelling to his patients to quit smoking. Uh, and uh, a lot of them did. Because yep. they revered him. They just uh, respected him so much. And uh, this kind of very, very high confrontational uh, approach did have some effect. Would they recommend it in 2021 in the, the United States? Absolutely not. There were yeah. different kind of circumstances. But I yeah. see action.
1: So can you talk a little bit about MAT and, and what okay. we're finding is clients that are on I mean, just, just sharing with you, clients that are on MAT for an extended period of time, um, they're also on medical marijuana, seemingly, for an extended period of time. Um, they're on gabapentin, they're on Seroquel, they're on a fixer. Is, is there a point at which um, that it becomes of concern? Yes,
0: yes, of course there is. But let me just take MAD out of this, and then I can come back to the okay. situation that, that, that you're saying. Um, medication-assisted treatment, uh, we like to, to call it the uh, medications for opioid use disorder, MOUD uh, these days. MOUD, the yes. Um, Aaron's
1: corrected me on my vernacular. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Aaron. There's a good point to it because it's not a medication-assisted treatment. It's not like the the medication is like, you know, just an adjunct to treatment. Very much like, for example, the medications that we have for alcoholism. Yeah. Medications we have for alcohol use disorder, they are adjuncts. You know, the the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism calls them uh, hamburger helpers. Yes, they're good, they help, but they're just on the side. Not the same for opioids. For opioids, the medication is the main fare. So um, for some people, and quite a few, maybe 30% of people who have the diagnosis of opioid use disorder, uh, being on medication for a long, long time, if not for the rest of their lives, is absolutely essential for them to be normal, to be healthy, to be functional. Um, Very, very similar to uh, an insulin-dependent uh, diabetic patient who whose pancreatic islet cells do not make uh, sure. enough insulin anymore, and they do need the exogenous insulin in order to be healthy. And, and
1: that seems to make such great, powerful sense.
0: It does. It does. The, the, the term that we use is, uh, um, you know, anyway, some kind of a... Uh, uh, a decreased hedonic tone that somehow either because of genetics or because of use or because of the combination of genetics and use a person's hedonic tone has yep. decreased there are yep. experience, uh, this kind of uh, pleasure that most of us are able to to enjoy in our everyday lives
1: and no we- and we've seen those transformations yeah. they've been powerful and people have relationships they have employment life is good But then it seems,
0: Uh uh
1: I mean, and and medical marijuana also has its advantages, um, even in conjunction with MAT. But sometimes I I guess the the tension is when I see people, I see individuals being treated for um, mental illness, uh, sleep disorders, and it, it, it seems at some point in time, and also, Dr. I mean, bluntly, many people carry from the Department of Corrections, um, from moving from jail to jail to prison to prison, uh, they've, they have an accumulation of pharma that no one necessarily has looked at the the drug interaction no one has carefully or critically reviewed it and
0: it just goes on and on and on and on and then they go from absolutely, absolutely. you're absolutely correct Jim. Mean, this is this is a major issue there because you you inherit other people's educations and everybody not everybody but a lot of uh many people who are not uh, all that maybe well trained or they don't know exactly what they're doing they are terrified to take anything out from the yes base. And uh, so they just add more stuff uh, to it. uh, Very often, not the the, the best way to go. Uh, I often joke that uh, I spent four years in psychiatry residency, uh, learning how to prescribe. And I spent two years in uh, addiction psychiatry fellowship, uh, learning how not to prescribe and how to to hold back on on these medications. Uh, So there's uh, there's certainly something to be said for uh, adding more and more and more agents and We don't even know this, we don't even have the evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Pretty much medications are being studied uh, on their own. Uh, All the clinical trials that we have is, uh, you mentioned uh, Cetiapine, Seroquel. We have Cetiapine versus placebo, or perhaps maybe versus another agent, maybe two, maximum three at the same time. That's, and very, very few such studies. Not what we see in real life, is, as you very well said, somebody comes into CB and they have a laundry list of medications. Who knows what these medications are doing to the people's you know, receptors in their brains?
1: Yeah. I mean, 800 milligrams of gabapentin three times a day, sericol fixer, suboxone, and.
0: and- you, you mentioned just the medications that you mentioned are, are some of my favorite medications. Uh, certainly, gabapentin, several eupropion. I'm not sure if you talked about eupropion, but uh, certainly, you know, ephrenorphin. Uh, uh, yep. But taken together, I, I want. I have very little confidence to say what exactly they they produce in somebody's head.
1: Yeah. So, so what do we? I mean, just to to work for on behalf of the participant, is that something that? perhaps we at new jersey we should do a better job of flagging
0: that for the benefit of the psych
1: um
0: uh, i'm not sure if a, a higher level of uh, regulatory oversight will give us the the, the, or, the or
1: just bringing uh, it to the attention of the doctor
0: um we did that in, in New York with uh, several antipsychotics. Whenever a patient was on two or more antipsychotic medications, uh, was flagged, and uh, uh, that did have some effect. People were uh, prescribed, have less polypharmacy uh, that way, so it may be something to consider. Uh, to me, probably the most important ingredient there is to have some continuity of care, uh, meaning that uh, because of how medical Care is being uh, structured in 2021. Uh, a, a, an individual patient uh, will see, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Levunis on Monday, and then when they come back uh, next Wednesday, they're going to see uh, Dr. Madrivi, and then they're going to see somebody else. And there's no real continuity of, of care. If a patient were to see the same person uh, f- for the long run, then they develop a relationship. You start feeling, you know, you start getting a sense about what the patient. Really takes at home because it's one thing to have the laundry list of medications. What actually is being ingested is a different story. Yeah. So we have that question mark yeah. as well. So developing a, a, a relationship with the provider, with the psychiatrist, with the MP, with the PA, uh, that probably would make the biggest uh, difference because then difference. the patient will come clean at some point and say, Well, you know, you have been prescribing this, but uh, You know, I don't really take it that gives me erectile dysfunction or this or that. And, uh, you know, admit to things that are not easy to to discuss. Mm. Is there when
1: when you think of like many of there's a significant cohort, doctor, of of our participants, maybe as much as as much as 20 percent that I think will never be able to fully participate in life. Um, in addressing modern systems and providing for themselves in terms of medicine, in terms of food, in terms of healthcare, and in terms of employment, um, what many of us would call SSI recipients, that that 20% of persons um, that struggle and, and it's c- combined, its it's addiction, it's mental health, but it's also the complexity of modern systems. Has has that contributed to, um, not necessarily an increase in mental illness, but has that exacerbated uh, the conditions of persons? It's exacerbated by what? Has has the complexity of modern systems, of modern life, has that made it more difficult for people that might
0: have been, excuse my metaphor, at the edge? yeah yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm a physician myself, uh, and uh, uh, I uh, work in a hospital, and uh, I'm so familiar with all these uh, uh, you know structures that that I that I have to see every day. and then when I go to the doctor, I get confused with the insurance, with this, with that. yeah, uh, just the complexity. that uh, some guys, some some of our guys just say, Forget it. I I don't blame them. It's just incredibly complex. Sometimes you have to read something three or four times to understand even where where they're getting at and what do they want me to do. Forget whether I wanted to do it or not. Just simply understand what is asked of me. I mean, imagine if you're you know if you're suffering from severe mental illness without some help, without some significant uh, help. But of course, there are other places uh i I see that
1: with a lot if i can with our veterans because they might have had um, a rough discharge by the department of defense and then the veterans administration decides what benefits are tied to what level of discharge and then if they're dishonorably discharged they don't get benefits then they come to the board of social services at a county because they're a veteran the board will say no We need a letter from the VA, and it's just like Department of Defense, Veterans Administration Board, and it's just like this awful
0: pirouette. It really is. Uh, I'm not sure how well the system is working, uh, but the word navigators, I think, is brilliant. Uh, We do use patient navigators here, again, I'm not sure how effective it is, but the concept Of actually helping another human being navigate this whole crazy system
1: is what is helpful. In fact, we just signed an agreement with Department of Corrections today, um, so that we'll be providing that service for the women coming out of state prison. So it. it, So can you talk a little bit? So one is the complexity of systems. Could you also talk about technology and 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 this is my sort of thumbnail. Um, I wish I, my SATs would have been higher. I could have been a psychiatrist like Petros. Um, it seems that the constant distractions, the inability or contributes to the inability to focus, to have, now this is a stretch, to have meaningful conversation um, or relationships that are substantive. I see our guys come out of prison And just get sucked in to this tech vortex that they really they have very little control. My sense is they have very little control over their engagement.
0: Uh, You're talking about uh, uh, internet and uh, iPhones, internet, video games, music, all of it. Well, as you probably know, you know we're we're doing a lot of work with the technological addictions here. This is kind of our next uh, uh, kind of uh, generation. psychiatry in in some ways, and and I have to say upfront that there are a lot of people who use technology and they have no problem with it. Yeah, sure, of course, and all that, and and so on. But uh, there are several people who suffer significantly from this. uh, from these addictions so whether it's texting and emailing or surfing the, the internet forever and ever uh, or the video gaming or auctioning and ebaying uh all kinds of gambling sometimes uh, that happens and um, the key w- word that is being that has emerged uh, over the past few months is uh disengagement That even if you do um have uh, spend a lot of time with technology uh find some ways of disengaging from it there's some pockets of life that are privileged in a way not to have a technology uh enmeshed with, with ev- ev- everything that you do um so even you know probably in your life uh, jim you may see now uh, at the bottom of emails saying, uh, uh, you know, unless it's urgent, uh, don't feel compelled to to respond yeah. uh, uh, before Monday. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, uh, there's a, there's uh, programs now from Outlook that do not even send uh, emails uh, in the evenings and nighttime, but uh, over the weekends, even if somebody writes it, you're only going to get it during uh, work hours. Yeah. So uh, there are some kind of efforts are being uh, put together to allow people to have this, uh, these little pockets of disengagement. Similarly, uh, families uh, are trying that with dinner time, uh, yep. have dinner without cell phones. Uh, and then everybody in the family has to comply by the same rules. It's not fair to have the teenager uh, not have a head or his cell phone and then uh the mother and the father are on their cell phone. So if you're gonna make some kind of a family rules you better this is
1: what my youngest daughter says to me.
0: <laughs> yeah it applies I, across the board.
1: Yeah. So so for for me, Doctor, you know, when you're talking about technologically you're talking about that break and you're talking about the disengagement um from something that it could be is typically very good but can have an adverse reaction Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know for me in life and you talked about aa or na but for me it's it's been you know prayer it's been meditation it's it it's been doing what my grandparents or great grandparents did because it's tradition and it's ritual It, it seems that for a lot of our guys and gals in the generic sense a lot of the narratives that I had growing up, whether it's um, you know, Judeo-Christian or the narratives of just understanding what, what I would call sacred myths of the world of, of whatever, whatever faith or whatever tradition. It seems there's a lack of, and I don't wanna to go too far with this, but there's a lack of purposefulness. And I see it particularly among the young guys i see i see a lot of a lot of our gals coming out reunifying with their families um i think i used to think it was the, just their children were were their primary motivator but you know they're finishing high school they're finishing technical school and i see a lot of our guys um, you know just uh, being somewhat lost i mean not having I mean, you know, whether it's the purposefulness of of my father's generation, or your father's generation, or going to school of our generation, um, I, I see a, a, a sense of anxiety, I see a sense of depression, particularly for young men. Um, and, I, I, you know, this is just anecdotally what I feel and what I see. Is there any
0: sense to that? Let me ask you, Jim, are you thinking about this uh, over the past couple of years with the pandemic or are you thinking about it in a kind of a longer sense?
1: In a longer sense, not just the pandemic, but in a in a longer sense. I mean, you read national trends, there are more women in, in law schools and medical schools graduating from college. Mm-hmm. But I just see, you know, not in the pandemic, but I see, you know, these diseases of despair. Um, but I also see this anxiety and this depression that interestingly enough, I don't see among our, our young women. nowhere near to the degree. Um, And this anxiety, this depression, and in some cases, almost doctor, like with, they almost seek a withdrawal, withdrawal from, from the world. I don't want to say it's, it's not, it's not fear, but it's, it's, they're having really problems grappling with the world as it is. And it's more of um, a young men phenomenon. That's just my sense. I see the women. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just interesting. And it's, it's across, you know, racial lines. In fact, you know, my sense is amongst among certain about majority population. It's, it's probably even worse uh, than among the African American or the Latino population. And there's a difference between men and young
0: men and young women. Hmm. Fascinating. I hadn't thought about it, uh, Jim. I haven't heard other colleagues of mine talk about that. Uh, uh, you may very well be uh, onto something here. Uh, I have to think about it. Uh, unfortunately, a, a, a side effect of uh, our uh, sensitivity sensibility with 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 issues of uh, of uh, gender uh, and race, but, but particularly gender in this case, uh, there has been much less attention from a scientific perspective in differences uh, among uh, you know men and women, for example. Just people shy away from this kind of research, from this kind of articles, from this kind of uh, discourse, uh, mm. and we have lost something. From, uh, from that, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there were, you know, the, the American uh, Journal of Psychiatry would be full of uh, uh, comparing men and women about uh, this or that. Uh, and somehow people have, uh, maybe they're, they're not, they're worried not to be called sexists or just that they're worried about, I don't know, this or that. But there hasn't been as much uh, um, scientific research, although what you're saying is just so 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 important uh, especially if it turns out to be uh, actually true to be such a, a difference in the trajectory of how women yeah. and how uh, men are doing these days
1: it's like it's uh, it's my 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 gut sense i used to always think it was because of many of the women in prison it's their reunification with their children was a primary force but for so many of them they come home and their children have moved on because obviously during their time in prison, life did not stand still. Children built new relationships, but there's still a, a res- for lack of a better word, a resilience that many of the women have. And I just find, particularly not among the older men, but the younger men, when I say the age group between 25 to 40, I find and it because all we deal with is adults, but I find the, a level of, um, you know some people call it diseases of despair in terms of addiction and suicide yeah. and and the u s mortality rate is actually decreasing but i it's something even more simple or basic for me it's It's this sense of anxiety that is is that I never had I mean, maybe I was more sure of my place in the world, but i I, I just see that, and I just wondered whether or not there were any trends or there were any Um, larger thoughts, but just for your consideration.
0: Just a couple of quick things here. I mean, I I think it's wonderful what you're saying, and uh, I'm going to certainly think about it uh, some more. Um, Obviously, cannabis has been uh, uh, vilified, has been thought to be the cause of all evil, and it is not, and we now know that. Um, But there is an angle to uh, to tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient, the psychoactive ingredient in, uh, in in cannabis that has been associated with uh, an amotivational syndrome with a reduced motivation uh, and purpose uh, so um there could be an angle uh, that uh, you know uh, that the amotivational syndrome may explain some of what you're you're saying uh, mm-hmm. here, uh, Jim um the other but thing I, I almost so, think it's cultural, it's bigger, but anyway, is something yeah, to consider? Yeah, it's a small component to it, but, uh, but uh, that's what comes to mind. But the other thing that also comes to mind is when I talked about uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and 12 step programs and mutual help uh, before, I said there are two major ways that they can be particularly yeah. helpful to people. And the first one was the logistical part, the Cognitive behavioral yep. therapy type things, the support, the uh, you know the, the, the assertiveness and, and so on. But there's another component, the second component, uh, which may be even bigger and more important than the first one, and that's the spirituality arm of uh, A.A. and Toast, yes. uh, programs. And uh, this, uh, the spirituality component of Alcoholics Anonymous, has been incredibly helpful. Uh, to people. And now there are studies that show that there are particular parts of the brain that light up uh, differently for people who uh, go to AA consistently and has to do more with the, uh, the sense of purpose, as you mentioned, the sense of belonging, uh, a sense of something much bigger than just me and, and myself. Something that I can take out of my shoulders and put it somewhere, the higher power. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's also Dr. Kind of it's also, and I'm a great believer,
1: but it, it's also a sense of community. So wow. many of our of our um, particularly our young our young guys, you know, they don't have it sounds so old fashioned, but they don't have good friends. Wow. They, wow. they 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 interact with lots of people. Um they interact in a in a medical setting, in a workforce setting. And a reentry training center tr- but they don't have five good male friends
0: they, they what they do have Jim, though is a 24 7 um testimony of their lives <laughs> yes always yeah. on the cell phone and they gobble to gobble like moment to moment they know exactly what's going on in each person's lives so that could be something positive. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's exhausting to say the least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so connected with somebody else, but uh, there are a lot of uh, probably friendships. Maybe not as classically defined friendships. as, yeah. as From us, but. Uh, the, well, yeah, uh, no.
1: I mean, like friendship, whether it's a man or a woman or for whomever or whatever gender, what it's just like they don't have like those. I remember being in college with people that I could talk to when you talk about AA or NA or even it's just those things that connected you to community that were that that had ritual that had practice that I I did it every week or I did it twice a week or I saw this person. So in the, in the second and the minutes we have left, by the way, I could talk.
0: You're great. <laughs> I, I love talking
1: to you, Jim. You know So that. <laughs> what is, is there any new intelligence? Is there any new sort of research when we, when we think of the interplay between, um, you know, trauma of imprisonment, uh, addiction, uh, mental illness, and we sort of look at, you know, what we've done, you know, M-A-T, uh, excuse me, uh, medication for opioid use yeah. disorder was, um you know, this is a minor miracle right here. I'm using the correct terminology. Um, that was a major breakthrough. Um, understanding behavioral norms norms were a major breakthrough. Uh, I would I would suggest probably CBT was was something
0: significant um and and then it gave rise to motivational interviewing and motivation yep which we do yep for the past 20 years i think it's been like the the major way which involves cbt to to a very large extent yeah i would say the three major directions uh in 2021 would be one mindfulness we do Mindfulness. mindfulness exercises with some of our patients we try uh to help them see their lives from the outside to yep. sharpen the observing ego as we call it so that they can see the craving and the addiction and all the mayhem is happening to somebody else and therefore, you know, have a little more of an opportunity to ride the wave of the chaos and the, uh, uh, and the craving and not necessarily engage in it. Uh, quite helpful. We haven't crossed all our T's or dotted all our I's yet. But this is certainly a, 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 a new direction in our treatment. The second one would be the apps, like the CBT apps. Yes. Um, very helpful, kind of like the Fitbit, uh, the kind of, yep. of life. Again, they haven't figured out exactly the interface with the therapist because the therapist cannot be 24 uh, 7 on yep. the call and check. Yeah, we have an app. app. And, and part of the
1: problem was also to go back to your point the motivation. I mean it it worked while we were providing money it didn't work well so that's also the challenge
0: yeah so again it hasn't been or the reward but i do think that eventually it is a very good uh, idea Uh, it does duplicate a lot of what is very expensive and very time consuming uh of uh, therapy of cbt therapy so you can do it on an app so i think it has a very good promise and the third one just to go come full circle in our original uh, discussion here, some renewed appreciation, respect, and celebration of good old Freudian uh, uh, psychotherapy, uh, where we just look more on the internal motives of the person. What is uh, actually that uh, is eating you up? Not just behavior, uh, mm-hmm. you know, behavioral uh, uh, treatment and behavioral sciences and so on, not just the outwardly manifestation of uh, our problems, but the inward one, of what is really the dynamics, what are the dynamics uh, inside a person's psyche? And of course, Freud uh, was uh, you know, one of the best to, and uh, his theories to look into these internal models. So I would say these three are the major new directions in our world. Uh, thanks.
1: So, I, you know, I, mindfulness, the apps, Freudian psychotherapy. And we, we're also starting now with narrative therapy, mm-hmm. um, where that's actually encouraging people to write, to think, and it sounds somewhat old-fashioned, but to think that their, if their life stopped now, what would be their obituary? And if your life was going to last for 20 more years, what would you want it to say? And, and and start writing the narrative of their lives, not only in terms of the trauma that they suffered. I mean, the first time this happened, the first time they participated with, whether it's heroin or, and and the first time they committed a crime, the first time they were arrested, but trying to also allow them to, to be mindful that they can change the trajectory of their lives. Absolutely,
0: no, very helpful. Uh, we have experimented some with uh, asking people to write the narratives uh, uh, with pen, with pen and paper. You know, yep. uh, it hasn't been very successful because few people have a pen and paper anymore.
1: Exactly. Uh, we actually uh, bought journals. I mean, this is terribly <laughs> old fashioned. But most of most of our participants don't have an iPhone. Thank goodness. So I, I, I just... Um, Professor, doctor, I just want to say thank you. I mean, That's it's, it's just, cool no, it's, it's just, you just sharpened the saw for me personally, um, for all of our listeners, for parents that are struggling with their own children's addiction, um, for providing hope that, of the complexity and the importance of providing different approaches to grapple with addiction, um, to understand that whether it's uh, medication for opiate use disorder, whether it's psychotherapy, that understanding the, the various arrows in that quiver that can move people to a healthy lifestyle. So to the venerable Petros Livonis, uh thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me. Thanks, doctor. Take bye care. Right. Be well. Bye-bye now. Take care. Thanks, my friend.